It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck. Welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here in the front row with you. Behind the scenes, as always, is J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. Well, after having football the last couple of weeks, and we thank you if you watched or listened to our episodes with Dwight Queenie and Larry Zonka, we turn the page to basketball here today. One of the great big men from the early 90s in college and in the pros it is Eric Montross joining us. Montross, an Indiana native, went to North Carolina, played for legendary head coach Dean Smith, won a national championship there while also battling against the Fab Five and a great ACC that included a Duke team that had Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill as well. We talk about that and talk about his time in the pros as well in the NBA, a high draft pick of the Celtics, had some legendary head coaches in the NBA and squared up against some of the game's greatest big men of that era as well. And right now, back at his alma mater, an analyst on the broadcast and also working in the Rams club, doing some great things. We talk about all that and also a great honor from a donor that was bestowed on him not too far ago. All that coming up, episode number 44, we're talking basketball with Eric Montross. Eric, first of all, uh, thank you for spending a little time with us here today as uh, we're on the eve of basketball season, so I know you're you're about to get very busy, do a lot of things, obviously, with the Rams Club in North Carolina, but analysts for the team as well. So I know you're excited about uh, the season ahead and just basketball's uh, bouncing once again in the arenas. Yeah, no, this is this is always a fun time of year. I mean, you, you see the the new faces coming in uh, on the team. You see the new faces around the country, and uh, and then you see coaches kind of hit the the reengage button with the engines, even though they've been going all off season. Of course, there's not a down day for for anybody these days. But um, when you do see that, it it, it just re-energizes, reinvigorates, and you know that uh, that you're just a few steps away from the start of the season and. And honestly, I mean, that's the way it feels. Our first uh, first exhibition comes up at the end of October, uh, and then it's just uh, all hands on deck moving forward. That's right. It's UNCW in North Carolina tipping off the season. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. But I want to talk about you, and, and you know, you're an Indiana guy. And I would think being from Indiana, basketball had to be in your bloodlines. At what age do you remember picking up a basketball for the first time and, and that being what you fell in love with? You know, I remember my dad, uh, my dad had a old rubber basketball that was signed by Oscar Robertson um, that he had picked up. And it was, you know, it was the old ABA ball. Um, and I don't know where it came from, but that was one of the first ones that I remember picking out of the out of the basement. Uh, there was kind of a bucket of everything from softballs to baseballs to footballs to Nerf balls, what have you. And um, I remember picking up that one and seeing it. It was a little bit faded when I got a hold of it. Certainly, the, the image is gone by now uh, with all those years. But um, but that was that was probably one of the first times. And of course, really, I started playing in a church league, uh, like a lot of kids. You know, you find a YMCA or you find a, a park and Parks and Rec, and you start just tooling around. And so so my story is not that different from that standpoint. Well, unlike some other people, you hit a growth spur at some point. When did that happen? And when did you think, okay, uh, basketball is definitely going to be my sport here? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I never had a growth spurt. You know, I, I um, you figure, how is that possible? The guy's seven feet tall. Certainly at some point there was, uh, he eclipsed the the normal growth rate. And, and I'm guessing that I was just abnormal my entire life and grew three inches a year. But, you know, I, the, the good news for me and for my body, um, you know, so many guys, I had friends, I'm sure that you had friends as well, who had Osgood Slaughter's disease in their knees or their backs were hurting or or they were they were stuck in shorts year round because their parents couldn't keep them in pants uh, for, for the fact they were growing so so fast. Um, you know, I grew three inches a year and uh, and that was kind of the, the stage that I went with. Well, again, it led to uh, certainly some good times. High school basketball in Indianapolis playing for uh, Lawrence North high school. What do you remember about those days? You were, were a McDonald's All-American back then and, and you helped lead them to a championship as well. You know, the, the thing I remember is what, um, I, you know, I, this, this sounds very old, but at age 51, I guess I'm allowed to, allowed to sound old. Um, I think that, you know, the thing that I remember is that you know, basketball in Indiana was 
terribly unique. It was a one class system. There was no single A, double A, triple A, four A, five A, six A. Um, it was if for for you or for your viewers, uh, if you if you watch the movie Hoosiers, that was Indiana high school basketball. And even though that was set many many years prior to me, um, that was still the feel. Everybody still came up toe the line. All teams were in. Uh, when the pairings were set, and it gave a very unique feel to Indiana high school basketball. Some people I've heard have equated it to what Texas high school football is, the Friday night lights of, of that world and of that sport. But, um, you know, high Indiana high school basketball, I think, in a lot of ways, people say, well, well tell me more. What what is put some meat on the bone? And I think you think about, you know, at, at age in your seventh and eighth grade teams, when you were in middle school, and you were just trying to find a toehold in athletics, if that was your your hobby or your passion, um, you had great coaches. And so even seventh and eighth grade coaches were really good at teaching the game of basketball because basketball was a part of the culture uh, in the state of Indiana. And that was something that for me was that I really benefited from. I had uh, educated coaches who really knew how to teach. And that's really the key in any sport or whether you're in a classroom or on a court or, or on a field, if you've got a really good teacher at an early age, you learn some of the intangibles that make a difference down the line. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of your teachers that you had in, in your career as well. And uh, with that one class system, how many games did it take you to, to win that championship with, with everybody playing in, in that one tournament? You know, um, we had three sectional games, two regional two semi-states. So where are we? We're at seven and then uh, and then the state final. So it was an eight or nine game round. And um, we played at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Incidentally, that was the field house that held the state championship game in the movie Hoosiers. Yeah. Um, so that's Butler's uh, home court. And so a lot of people can recognize that as Butler came onto the stage here in the last several years um, to be to be a legitimate uh, contender in so many ways and and to be that uh, that signature team that come March always seemed to be in contention. Um, but, um, but it was it, the thing that was unique about the Indiana high school tournament was that you played two games in a day. And so on Saturdays, once you got past the sectionals, then you'd play two games in on a Saturday in the regionals, two games on a Saturday in the semi-state. And then you would go to the state finals and just have your single game. So, what you found is you had an 11 o'clock game in the morning and then a six or seven o'clock game in the evening. So uh, you talk about guys recharging batteries. It was uh, it was a quick turnaround, but a ton of fun at that age. It was just you couldn't have asked for anything better. Yeah, that's crazy. Two games in one day, a couple of times as well. Well, uh, again, it paid off for you guys, led them to a championship. And, and again, 1990, you're a McDonald's All-American first team all USA today. So obviously getting recruited take us through the recruiting process because you're an in-state guy in Indiana. I would assume that Bob Knight, Gene Cady at Purdue, they had to come calling at some point. Yeah. You know, the big 10 was King in that area. And so um, I had had a long line of, of family history um, with the university of Michigan. Um, I know you mentioned Indiana and Purdue, but certainly Bill Frieder, who was at Michigan, great coach, Steve Fisher, who followed him. Um, my dad played at Michigan, then my mother's father, so my grandfather played at Michigan. He was a three-time All-American, 6'4 point guard, nicknamed the Houdini of the hardwood. Uh, he had an incredible career, played in the played in the pros beyond that, played with John Wooden. John Wooden was a, was a roommate of his wow. uh, in the pros. And then my dad um, followed on the other side of the family. Um, went to the University of Michigan. As he said, he had a great front row seat for all the games. Didn't get on the court very much, um, but he had a great vantage point and, um, and had the opportunity to go to a great school. So, um, you know, between Michigan and Indiana and Purdue, certainly Bobby Knight at that time, Gene Cady was a real presence, but Bobby Knight was the Indiana presence for basketball. Um, and if you were worth anything, um, Bobby Knight was going to take a look at you as an in-state player. So, um, had a lot of uh, had a lot of interactions with the Indiana coaches, being Katie and Knight, uh, and was very flattering uh, for me to be approached by the caliber of schools that were talking to me. You know, the recruiting process was very different. You know, this was 
uh, I received my first um, recruiting letter from Tom Davis uh, at University of Iowa uh, when I was in the eighth grade. And I guarantee you that the only reason was because I think I was six, eight in the eighth grade. Um, and so when you look at, at how things started and how things continued, it was a pretty measured approach. It was not uh, uh, kind of a crazy um, fan festival of going to all these different tryouts and different uh, tournaments all across the country. You know, these were these were local settings. Um, nobody seemed to have the money back then to travel all over the country. So it became a regional affair. And you, you did your fair share of driving in state or to the adjoining states, but it wasn't something where you ran out to California for a weekend. Well, obviously, you spurred those guys. You spurred the Big Ten, and, and you go to North Carolina in the ACC, and you play for Dean Smith. What, what was it about Dean Smith and North Carolina basketball that really attracted you to, to make that kind of move? You know, I, I tell people when you talk about the recruiting process and what makes a, um, a decision in your mind, um, the thing that I try to, to equate it to is, you know, for all of us, we've all had situations in our lives where we've had a a big important uh, decision, a pivotal one, if you will. Um, and, and ultimately you find a, a feeling in the pit of your stomach that says, you know what, that feels right. I just have, it's hard to put into words, but I just kind of feel like that's the right decision for, for me. And in this case, the right decision for me uh, was to go to the University of North Carolina to play under Coach, uh, Coach Smith. Um, and the thing that I think that uh, a lot of, and again, the lens that you that I look through changes over the years. But um, but even when I was in school, I was aware of coaches work as a humanitarian for his interest in the community, for his love of equality, for his um, dedication to his players, to his staff, to his school. Um, and he really saw that basketball was a pedestal for him to send out um, his beliefs and to stand by those beliefs and to let chips fall where they may. You know, remember that Coach Smith was hung in effigy uh, soon after he took the the um, head coaching job here at Carolina. Um, and I think that that's something that I can't identify with. I wasn't around during those that time period. Um, but you know, as you hear accounts of those days, you recognize um, this that's a big deal. You know, it's much bigger deal than what happens on the confines of a basketball court. And so um, I saw Coach as a humanitarian. I saw him as a great leader, a great teacher, uh, a mentor, and someone who cared deeply for the people that he was involved with and was really, really lucky to be recruited by him for a couple of years, but then play for him for four years. And I know you currently do a lot of stuff in the community, the Children's Hospital there in, in Chapel Hill, and, and obviously you're dedicated to your university working for the Rams club as well. Is that kind of your takeaway, as you said, from, from Coach Smith? Is Are you kind of an, an embodiment of, of Dean Smith right now on that campus, you think? Oh, I think that's that's way too way too high praise for, for, for me. Um, you know, I, I think that what I look at is um, most of the lettermen who played for Coach Smith recognize that basketball is but a component of who we are. Uh, and I think that in a lot of ways, all of us have to have had some impression to that end made by Coach Smith and by his staff. Um, and so the opportunity to give back, the opportunity to entrench yourself in your, in your community becomes more important with age. But I think that that's also something that we even say, see today with current day players, with the NBA, you know, guys like LeBron James who are, who are making an impact in their hometown, who care deeply, who who don't just talk the talk, but also walk the walk. And I think it's a, you know, we have a, a gift of recognition by our fans. Um, we, we don't wear helmets, we don't wear pads. And so you get to see us for who we are uh, visually, but also um, we're easy. We're easy targets to recognize because we're, we're typically a whole lot bigger <laughs> than anybody else around us. Um, and so uh, it gave me an opportunity to have um, a bit of a pedestal, a bit of a a bench to 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 go out and to try and do good things within our community. And the Children's Hospital happened to be um, one that really hit home for me. And again, you, you like as you said, you're out there in front of people and uh, you had great success in front of people as well. 1990 to 94, you're at Carolina. Obviously, you win that 1993 national championship. Take us through that year. And as you guys came together, 
for the preseason, did you figure or did you think that this could be a special team and maybe a special year for North Carolina? Yeah, I, I remember. Um, uh, so the way Coach Smith did it was before practice started, the entire team would come together uh, in the locker room and we would set goals. And I think that one of the things that every team um, kind of knee-jerk reaction is, well, we want to be national champions. So that's our goal. Um, I think that when you really get down to it, there are but a handful of teams that that becomes a realistic goal for that team. Um, it was not our only goal. Um, Coach Smith brought us in prior to the season, and we had a great set of senior leaders. I mean, George Lynch, one of the greatest players, teammates, leaders that I've ever been around, uh, was a senior that year, along with Matt Wenstrom, Scott Cherry, Kevin Salvadori. Um, and, and these were guys that um, had had walked that walk. And then we were a junior class um, that was quite heralded from the time we were recruits and commits to Carolina. Um, but it was an opportunity for us to take some of the experiences that we had had in the past, both positive. We went to the Final Four as freshmen. We didn't all play very much. We didn't all play very well in that in that setting, but we learned. And I think that by the time we were juniors, uh, at least by the time I was a junior with the class that I came in with, um, we had a realistic set of expectations that gave us an opportunity to set New Orleans in the spring of 93 as a realistic goal. And that was something that we did have uh, from that day forward. Um, Coach Smith did something really uh, pretty, at that time, it seemed quite amazing. Uh, this day and age uh, with technology, it doesn't seem nearly uh, as amazing, but um, he had... Uh, photocopied an image of the inside of the New Orleans Superdome, and he had superimposed on the scoreboard, uh, it was more of a banner that said NCAA National Champions, the University of North Carolina. Um, and, and that was in, hung in our lockers on the first day of practice. And it stayed in our lockers on the first day of practice. And people talk a lot about the powerful images that associate with success. And for us, it was almost that subliminal reinforcement that this team had the capacity to end up in New Orleans. Now it was up to us to do the little things to come up with the roadmap um, to actually get there. But, um, but we had that uh, in our mind. We also had uh, that, you know, a goal to win the ACC, to win the ACC tournament, um, to play well enough to become a number one seed and set yourself up to be relatively local for your initial seeding. Um, have a good fan following, stay on the East Coast for us was important, and then end up in New Orleans. And, of course, uh, that was a bit of a swan song, and it all happened. Well, he's a basketball innovator, also a Photoshop innovator before Photoshop even existed there. For right. Coach Smith. <laughs> what was he like as a coach? Because you kind of see footage of him. I had a chance to meet him once or twice, and just seems kind of a, you know, he was a laid-back, kind of a soft-spoken guy. How, what was his coaching style like with you guys? Well, I think most people would say that he appeared to be laid back and somewhat soft-spoken, but um, make no mistake, no, no bones about it, he, he had a competitive fire that burned within at all hours of the day and night. And, uh, and he, was a, he was a worker, you know? I mean, his work would occur throughout the night grading film uh, when his staff had gone home, when the players had gone home, when we were all tucked in bed and and yet he was working. He was thinking about the game, thinking about our personnel, thinking about the personnel that we were going to pit ourselves against in the next contest, whether it was preseason, regular season, or postseason play. Um, and so um, he was, I think the thing that, that sticks out to me is that some coaches, for instance, um, after a loss or after a, a big win, um, you have a really long practice. And it just kind of goes on uh, at a, to a place where players start to lose uh, their focus. And the thing that I always thought about with Coach Smith was that even in our hardest practices, it felt like it was done in a flash. And not because we were done always in an hour and 15 minutes. Practices would regularly go an hour and 45. Um, but it was, um, it was very calculated as to how long we would spend in each drill. And even if we had performed poorly the night before, um, the drill that would replicate some of the areas where we had our greatest faults was not an interminable uh, drill. It was a set number of minutes. And those minutes 
ticked away. It was three or four or five minutes, and then you were on to the next uh, to the next drill. And I think that allowed us to keep focus. It allowed us from getting kind of to a a mind numbing state, um, but it allowed him to drill in the message that this was important and we need to continue to practice this. Um, he was he he really was all about accountability. Um, he didn't mind mistakes. He just minded if you continued to make the same one. Um, and, and, and even when you did, he wanted to make sure that you were taught and instructed, okay, you've made this mistake. Let me tell you the first time how to avoid that in the future. If you make it again, there may be a little further ramifications. You might see playing time. You might step out of practice. You might have a sub come in. But what was going to happen is that you're going to be taught how to avoid to make that mistake again, um, not through punitive measures, but through instructive measures. And I think that's the thing that really sticks out to me about Dean Smith was that his ability to teach in a way that was conveyed easily yet thoroughly with his players was something that was a high, high mark. Certainly served you guys well again in 1993, a number one seed. It started with a win against ECU, overtime win in the Elite Eight against Cincinnati, Final Four win against Kansas. And when it's all said and done, Michigan is in your way. As you said, your dad played for Michigan, your grandfather played for Michigan. What's going through your mind at that point? You're a junior playing for the national championship against a Michigan team that maybe they thought you'd be wearing their maize and gold. You know, that was a team that we had lost to uh, in the Rainbow Classic in Hawaii at the onset of that season. It was right around uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. It was one of those early season tournaments that we see so often uh, these days uh, still continuing. Um, and it was a nip and tuck game. I think it was Jalen Rose that hit the hit the floater in the middle of the lane to win that game. Um, and yet it was it was just nip and tuck the whole way, as I said. Um, and so I think coming into that game, we knew that we had been tested. Uh, you know, people will talk about that Cincinnati game and the overtime. Um, you got to get lucky. Sometimes you hear that from folks is that in the in the NCAA tournament, that six game run, you've got to have one where you get a little bit lucky and luck falls in your in your favor. Um, coach had a, a saying uh, that we used often for our, uh, during practice that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Um, and so um, if you prepare hard enough, then maybe you can stack the cards in your favor for those situations. Um, but coach was was um, adamant that we didn't change the way we prepared regardless of our opponent. Um, it was always about looking inward instead of looking outward. And so even whether it's uh, early in the game when guys are kind of looking at the other team, assessing how somebody's looking in warmups or what have you, um, our team really didn't do that. Our team was focused on ourselves and our own preparation and trying to control the things that we could. And so we knew that going into that Michigan game, that was going to be uh, a real challenge, certainly. But we were also very confident. And I think there's a fine line between confidence and cockiness. Um, but I think that because of the, the amount of preparation that we had put in, and thanks to our coaching staff, who he, we had such complete confidence in, I think that we were confident that we could perform at that level on that stage. Because it was the Fab Five and, and the notoriety that they got, was it, a, was it a crazy kind of setting, a crazy kind of scene in that Final Four in the championship game facing a team like that? Well, I just remember that the only the only person who believed that we could win that game, um, aside from our families, and and maybe some of them didn't even really think that we could win, um, was J.R. Ryder. J.R. Ryder was a player out at UNLV, and J.R. and I had run into each other in a positive way through some camps through high school, and so you know you still knew the players around the country, but J.R. was. Uh, was one of the only players that had been interviewed and said, who's going to win in this game? And he said, Carolina's going to win. Um, and so we were certainly not favored coming in. But, um, you know, I, I think that a big part of what Michigan had, they certainly had the best talent. Chris Weber was certainly more talented than Eric Montross. So when you look at, um, at, at the depth that they had um, individually, they were better. Uh, but collectively, we were better. And I think that that's the thing that I go back to and that I love about uh, athletics and particularly the team sports is that it's not about who bests who. It's about which team bests which team. Uh, and so it takes away the individual 
pressures and allows you to to build off of one another's um, positives, but also protect against each other's weaknesses. And that's what this team, our team, was built around. Well, and I'm sure during that time as well, with toughen you guys up, and maybe everybody during that time in the ACC was was Duke, the Duke Carolina rivalry, as a lot of people talk about that. Obviously, and during that time. You know, they're coming off a couple of national championships, but they got Leitner, they got Hurley, they've got Grant Hill as well. What was it like, not just that rivalry, but during that time, Duke and Carolina in the early 90s? Oh, it was a great time to be playing in the ACC. I mean, you look, whether it was NC State with the fire and ice with Gugliotta, and, you know, Gugliotta was one of the guys that I saw on a regular basis my freshman year, and you kind of recognize that, that's the kind of front court player that uh, that you see that that you knew was a senior that you knew was so talented had learned the game and and he was a man and and we were just trying to become men within that realm um, and of course Duke was terrific Wake Forest was terrific of course that was when Rodney Rogers and Randolph Childress uh, were in their prime and um, you know it was a really talented group of ACC teams within the state of North Carolina um, and. Uh, and pretty obviously, you know, uh, the bragging rights had gone to Duke for the first two years, our freshman and sophomore years when they won the title. Um, and, and certainly we weren't thrilled about that. But I also think that that it made us better because every time we stepped onto the court against one of our in-state opponents, um, we knew we had to perform at a really high level. It didn't mean we always won. But I do think that even in losses, we were able to capitalize on the opportunity to learn. Um, and that was something that strengthened our team over time. Um, and what a great opportunity to play against what would be a Hall of Fame coach and, and Mike Krzyzewski. Um, Of course, Coach Smith already had um, that title to his name as a Hall of Famer. But um, but our teams were were gifted. But the coaches within the state of North Carolina were equally as gifted. And I think that made the teams, the universities, the fans all that more engaged. So many great matchups, but I'm sure you get asked a lot about the, the, the bloody Montrose game, February 5th, 1992. You get bloodied and kind of really symbolize that that rivalry. Uh, what was it like? You had the cut under the cheek, I think a cut on your head as well. Uh, how difficult of a, a game was that? That game was thrilling. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, I will start with what wasn't thrilling, which was the first basket of the game. As I recall, it was a CBS national televised game. Um, all the hoopla and hysteria around the rivalry uh, that was becoming more and more intense at that time. Um, but Grant Hill receives an alley-oop pass from Hurley to start the game. And it was right in front of the Duke bench. And you just think, oh, man, like one, one, more, one more card to stack against you to start off the game that way. But, you know, the thing I remember about that game and so many of the Duke Carolina games is just how it was so pivotal. Even in the last year, when we were fortunate enough to win uh, the final game at Duke and then in the final four, it's a possession by possession game. And that's the thing that I think is so much fun to be a part of as a player. It's nerve wracking, but it's, it's wonderfully fun and stimulating to be a part of that environment when you're playing against excellent players. Christian Leitner was a terrific player. He was a guy that wanted to play on the outside as more than he wanted to play on the inside. And I didn't want to go outside to guard him. And yet he pushed me and made me better. I'd like to think that but me going to the post, I made him better uh, as a player that would rather not be there. Um, and, and I think that um, when you look at these teams and how, how many talented players, the coaches that coach them, um, that game was a lot of fun. But the best part about it, I mean, certainly there's the memorable images that are indelibly scrawled into people's minds. But um, the best part of that was after the game being held up by your teammates and having the floor being rushed by your students because they were living breath by breath, possession by possession as well. And and that was the mark of what that rivalry represented. It was just an incredible, uh, incredibly competitive atmosphere. It was an comp uh, incredibly competitive game. And the players that were there were some of the best that have played in the ACC. Yeah, you won that game 75-73. And uh, that rivalry kind of gets a redo again. A little bit this year with Hubert Davis and now John Shire taking over at, at Duke. So, uh, again, for you, outstanding career there for, for North Carolina. 
that leads to the NBA. And in 1994, ninth overall pick by the Boston Celtics. Um, take us through that, if you would. And, and, you know, Celtics, obviously, in the NBA, one of the storied franchises. What was it like in, in the draft in the Hoosier Dome at that time back in the, your home state of Indiana? Yeah, it was in my home state. I chose to spend that evening at home with my with my family and, and a handful of friends, um, even though I was predicted to be a, a top 10 pick and ended up going number nine to the Celtics. And I remember uh, the next day I landed in, in Boston at Logan Airport and um, a few minutes later was sitting in front of Red Auerbach uh, in the garden in his office. And it was the classic. You know, he was wearing his sweater. He had the ashes from his cigar right here on his chest. And um, and, and it began uh, a two year, two and a half year stint with them um, that was just steeped in history. And of course, that was when Robert Parrish had just come down to the Hornets. Um, you saw uh, McHale had retired just recently. Bird was out recently. Ainge, Dennis Johnson, all the players that had made uh, in the most recent history for when I arrived, the most recently, had made Boston just uh, an absolute power in the NBA. And so playing in the old garden, playing in front of a really educated fan base, that fan base knew the game of basketball. Um, they knew what they were cheering for and why. Um, they understood the players and it was a great environment and it was so much fun. Chris Ford and ML Carr were the two coaches that I played under. Chris Ford was just really hard nosed and a wonderful instructive coach and ML Carr, although different, um, certainly had a number of qualities as well, um, but it was a great way to launch that career by being in Boston, a, a city that um, was really had the tradition of success. And it, and it was conveyed to us as players and just being able to be a part of that history was a lot of fun. And I would think still, you know, mid early 90s era still for the center, more back to the basket, very physical, uh, less of what it is right now. Well, certainly, I mean, my first game, uh, my opening game as a rookie uh, in Boston Garden was tipping it off against Patrick Ewing and the Knicks. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there would have been a player that I would have looked at and thought there could be anyone any better for me to go up against than Patrick Ewing. And so it was like, well, thanks a lot. Now I get to my, my rookie debut gets to go against one of the greatest players to ever play the game in, in Ewing. Um, but Really, that continued around the country. You know, you, you talk about the big man, and certainly um, the post play is something that is uh, quite rare now. Everybody wants to stretch it out and become uh, more fluid in the game and not have that really physical kind of uh, individual combat, if you will, inside with those players. But um, whether it was Patrick Ewing or a counterpart from Georgetown and Alonzo Mourning, or whether it was David Robinson with the Spurs or Carl Malone with the Jazz, or O'Neal when he was in Orlando, and then of course moved out to the Lakers. Um, Sean Kemp with the Supersonics. I mean, you just that you just kept going. Um, Olajuwon with the Rockets, uh, probably the most talented player that I ever played against, uh, and 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 that's saying something because of the names that I just said pre prior to his. Um, but it was a wonderful time to play. Um, you just you saw uh, a very educated player. You saw veteran players who knew the tricks of the game. Um, and that was something that always kept you on your toes and kept you engaged. And you knew that you were playing the best of the best. And for for uh, once you get to the NBA, um, it's not the top of the mountain. The top of the mountain is being able to play against those guys night after night uh, and to enjoy a sport that uh, that becomes your profession. Yeah, you, you're talking about some of the best big man in the, the league at that time, but the history of the NBA as well. And you mentioned some of the different things that they did as veteran players. Was there one that is kind of your welcome to the NBA moment that you remember the most and like, okay, this isn't the ACC anymore. Well, I, I remember, um, so we played, so I was, I was with the Celtics. It was my rookie year. Um, I remember uh, two things. Both of them have to do with Hakeem Olajuwon, who, again, I just have the utmost respect for. I got to I ended up uh, ending my career and he ended his in Toronto. Um, and so we played for the Raptors together. Um, but as as a rookie, you know, Olajuwon, that was his heyday. Uh, that was when um, he was with uh, he was in, in Houston. He was he had an amazing team around him. 
Um, and I remember the first time I got the ball in the post, uh, I was on the left block and turned over my left shoulder or turned over my right shoulder and launched an air ball um, straight over the side of the basket. And it was a, you know, it was a jump hook. It was something that I had done a thousand, 10,000 times. And yet I think in my mind, I thought this is the NBA's all-time leading shot blocker. This thing's going to get erased if I don't do something a little bit different. And what was different is I didn't hit anything. <laughs> and so I kind of remember that moment. Um, and then, and then your nerves calm down and you start to play. And I remember the next contest against Lajuan and, um, and it was interesting. He was such a, such a fun guy to, to play against. Cause he was, he just, he didn't have anything cheap. Everything about him was just, um, was, was almost flawless. And, you know, I remember, um, the ball was taken out behind me on an out of bounds and it was a dead ball. So everybody was kind of relaxed for a minute. And he was walking backwards towards the other end of the court and I was, uh, facing him. So my back was to the other, to the end line. And we crossed half court and we're nearing the three point line. Um, and all of a sudden he just takes one step and puts his arm out, but takes a quick step. And I just react and I think, oh my gosh, they're throwing over the top. Olajuwon's getting ready to get a, a long pass. I'm in a terrible situation. I've got to respond and respond quickly. So, I mean, I go into it almost like a dead sprint for two or three steps. And then I realize that the ball is still dead. And Olajuwon <laughs> looks at me and he says, gotcha, rookie. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I think that even in those moments when you're when you're playing out there and you're you're in such a competitive environment, um, he took the time, and, and that was part of the engaging uh, attitudes that players had. Then you, you know, you 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 got to know not just the player but also the person behind the player. Um, and Elajuma was just one of the very very best. Yeah, as you mentioned, you played with him with the Raptors, and with the Raptors, it was what Lenny Wilkins was your head coach. You've had. You know, Lenny Wilkins, you mentioned ML Carr. Also, Larry Brown was your coach at one point uh, with the Sixers. You had John Calipari as a coach as, as well. Yeah. Um, you know, among those, maybe are there ones that have the similarities to, to the Dean Smith that you played for at North Carolina? You know, the, the game, even even though the game was not the NBA game of today, it was a, it was a different style, different tactics of game. Um you know, it's hard for me to put anybody um, in a comparison with Coach Smith because um, part of it was because I spent four years with Coach Smith. Um, I didn't spend but three years at a maximum at any other place. In fact, three of those were under Lenny Wilkins uh, in Toronto. But I think that you, in college, you just get to know the people uh, on a deeper level. You know, in the pros, it's not the formative years for you as a player or a person. Uh, when you arrive in the pros, you better be polished. And I think that that's kind of the, the opportunity that you have to learn who people are and, and really craft yourself as who you're going to be. That happens when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. It doesn't happen when you're uh, in your mid-20s and you're competing in the NBA. The NBA is a very different animal. And so, um, you know, equally as fun in a lot of ways because you're, you're literally playing against the best of the best every night in the world. And at that time, the, the international uh, game was not what it is today. It was not the number of international players. Doesn't mean that they didn't have great players, but it was, it was thought to be here are the top 300 players in the world. Um, and so I think that um, similarly, great coaches, but it's hard for me to put someone else in the same category as Dean Smith. And I guess that just call me a Tar Heel. You know, that's the thing that um, I probably can't come up with somebody. I had a number of great coaches. Uh, like I talked about my rookie year, um, I felt really close to Chris Ford. I loved his style. He was as hard nosed a coach as I ever had. You know, I played in Dallas under a guy that that really very few would probably remember, Jim Clemens, who came. He was uh, an assistant um, with Chicago for a number of years. He was a guy that was great personality, had a diligent work ethic, never had a ton of success in Dallas in the short time that I was there. Jason Kidd was there. Jamal Mashburn was there. Um, but, you know, you talk about a Larry Brown. Larry Brown, very different than Coach Smith. Um, Larry Brown was kind of the, the the maestro who things may feel a little bit of 
out here and and every but come game time it was tightened up and dialed in um coach smith you felt dialed in from the time you were around him for the first time to when you when you graduated and and i think that um you know i was very fortunate to play for some of these great coaches and lenny wilkins you know was the winningest all-time coach in nba history when i was playing for him with toronto he was also the losingest all-time coach in the nba he had been around for a long, long time. None of us viewed him um, for his losses. We viewed him for his stature, for for his successes. But um, it was a it was a wonderful experience to play for a number of excellent coaches. Yeah, again, during your career, you, you had a lot of stops, but a lot of different great coaches there, as you said. And eventually, as a pro athlete, your career ends. What are you thinking at the end there? And and what in your mind was going to be next for you? Obviously, you're doing stuff now, but but what were you thinking toward the end of your career? You know, um, whether it's a, a kind of fight, this is it good or is it bad to have a medical injury, have an injury end your career? Um, in some ways, it takes the pressure off of you to to have to call and decide when's that time to step away. Um, and 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 in fact, you're told your body can no longer handle that, and so you have to step away. Um, I think that uh, I think that for me. And I'm sorry about this. I guess like everybody these days, we've got we've got animals in our in our offices. So my dog uh, must not like the way I'm answering this question. But uh, tough critic. So, tough critic. And, and yeah, he's a tough critic. He just wants food. I can assure you. Um, but um, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, the way that I approached my career was to prepare myself to the best of my ability um, to find myself in a position to succeed. Um, when given the opportunity. And similarly, by the time my career ended, uh, I had some things I had to take care of my body. I had to have a full ankle reconstruction. I needed to rehab that. I needed to, I had a young family. Um, my kids were both, you know, they were uh, three and five at that time. Um, I wanted to be able to spend some time with them. Um, and certainly it was nice to, to be able to do so. Um, and then it was time to think about what comes next for me. And, and because I had been in a life where there was never a down moment, it was always something's coming next, something to prepare for, something to work towards, something to better yourself for. Um, and, and for me, it was an opportunity to look inside and say, okay, I've got, a, I've got about 18 months where I can figure out what's going to happen next. Um, and what I found was that what was going to come next was finding a way to support the university through fundraising. Coach Williams had asked me to work to endow the men's basketball program. Um, I became really attached to the idea of fundraising to support the athletic sports, men's and women's at the university, particularly through scholarship and through long lasting operating endowments. Um, and then the opportunity came to to work under uh, Woody Durham for six years, the Hall of Fame broadcaster. And it felt to me like that was an opportunity that was really hard to turn down. I didn't know that I would love to be on the sideline, that I would love to be a part of someone trying to tell the story of a game to a listener. Um, but, but that also had its own challenges and its own kind of performance. Radio is live and there's no room to hit the pause button and say, oh, I shouldn't have said that in that way let me let me recap it for you in a different way what's said is said so used to performing on a stage in a live engagement was something that that i enjoyed i continue to enjoy that and it's given me an opportunity to stay engaged in this community here at the university of north carolina and find ways to impact the lives of of our young men and women who are having similarly formative experiences with their athletic endeavors and I'm glad you mentioned Woody Durham. There's somebody that's you know near and dear to my heart as well. Had a great influence on me. So uh, I know he's missed, but uh, he brought you to the table, as you said, and and uh, doing a great job as an analyst now, working with Jones Angel on the Carolina broadcast. So that brings us to, to current day North Carolina. Obviously, they go to the national championship last year, come up short, but this is a team uh, I'm sure that's got a chance to to be the number one uh, ranked team heading into the season. But before we talk about them, though, I want to talk about their coach because. He was a teammate of yours as well, Hubert Davis, right? Did did you think seeing him as a player, seeing him as a teammate, that that he could be what he's become so far as a head coach? Well, I, I think, you know, it would be probably short-sighted of me to say, oh, yeah, I knew he was going to have great success, um, particularly in his first year. 
I think that being said, um, for people who knew Hubert, who know Hubert, um, you know that he has risen to the occasion and risen to challenges and found ways to succeed um, because he also is relentless in his effort to succeed in, in whatever he's doing. And I think that, um, you know, I knew that about Hubert. I also knew the caliber of guy that he is. And so um, in a lot of ways, the older I get, maybe the more sentimental I get about the caliber of person who's leading this program that has meant so much to my life and to so many lives over the years, whether they're fans or players or professors at the university or folks who who see basketball as the front porch of, of this Carolina University. Um, and so I think that when we saw Hubert step into that role, um, there was it was certainly going to be a departure from Coach Williams, who was a tremendous, tremendous coach and had a long history, Hall of Fame type history. But there were going to be have to be things, and Hubert has said as much, that made this his own um, and that made this team his own. And I think that it, it was last year as we watched this team matriculate over the course of the season, um, we saw the ups and downs. And sometimes I know that there were people who thought, wow, was that really the right choice? Like, what about some of the other guys that were in, in, in running for that position? But what we saw was this relentlessly positive attitude to affect the trajectory of his team in a positive way to turn his team, to focus on the little things, to focus on the ride. And he's talked a lot about that and to kind of quiet the noise, if you will. Um, and, and Hubert did it. And I think that you look at what Hubert and his staff have done, and, and you, then you look at the players and you say, this day and age, it's really hard to find teams that have players that will go toe the line with you and stay there. And Hubert has kept them in, in a line where they believe that the future is brightest for them at the University of North Carolina. And so this year, we're looking at a team that, yeah, they're, they're more mature. Yes, we're seeing some of that around the country. We saw it in UCLA, probably one of the, if not the most talented team, uh, one of that we beat last year uh, on in the road to the Final Four. Um, but it's a rarity to have older players who have played together and this year's core team has played together now in a lot of minutes for the last three years. And so um, that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Certainly Armando Baycott anchoring the middle leaky black coming back for as COVID has affected all of college athletics for his sixth year. Um, and so it'll be a ton of fun to watch a team who, who doesn't have to start from square one on day one. That said is a championship or bust for this team this year, do you think? You know, they are going to be the hunted versus the hunter last year. Last year, everybody else had the target and we were trying to chase them down. This year, we've got the target squarely on our back, likely to be uh, preseason one or two uh, for Carolina this year. Um, the expectations will be sky high, certainly. I think that's unavoidable. Um, and so there's been a lot of discussion about um, really focusing on the fact that the little things have to make the difference. And it's not about riding on the coattails of last year's success, however sweet it was. Those memories are behind us. They're great memories, but we're starting anew. And so um, I think that for a lot of fans, that's probably the sentiment that they have, which is it's Final Four or National Championship or bust. But I think for those of us who have played the game, you realize how quickly something can turn and how lucky you have to be to have all the pieces in place all the time. Last year, right up until the Final Four, we had stayed healthy the entire season and we had played largely five or six guys exclusively. And so there were a ton of minutes, a ton of opportunities where players um, had avoided injury. Um, and that's something that you just don't know going in. Presumably, this year's team is a lot deeper Last year's freshmen, DeMarco Dunn, Dontro Styles, um, Puff Johnson, uh, all of whom contributed, um, but didn't contribute in what was necessarily a really meaningful way just because their minutes were so low. Presumably that sophomore year, you get that big jump in just recognizing, hey, I know I've been here before. 
I've been in practice before. I've been on campus before. My head's not spinning trying to learn the plays. I've done this before. It gives you confidence. And so uh, this year's team, I know I'm not answering your question. I'm not purposefully dodging it. I just think that this year's team has the capacity, but there are a lot of things that have to go right between now and April. Yeah, as someone who's won a national championship, like you said, you got to get lucky somewhere along the way to win those six games. Uh, we're almost out of time. We'll leave on this. I know you're a very humble guy, but but a donor recently named the center position after you. The scholarship is named in your honor. What does that tell you about the impact you've made to your alma mater? You know, um, it, it really kind of took my took the words right away from me, uh, took the kind of the air uh, in the room kind of went, went out when I was told that uh, it was a someone who a family that I had known for, for many, many years. But um, I never saw myself as being honored in that way to be one of five scholarships to ever be at the University of North Carolina and to have the center position uh, in my name attached to that scholarship. And yet the first thing that I thought of is this is this is an opportunity to represent all of the centers at the University of North Carolina. Certainly, I am not the best center to ever have played at the University of North Carolina. Um, there are a lot of guys that have been better at, than, than I have. Um, but what I will say is that it's fun to be able to share a part of this storied tradition and to be able to think about us as a group of post players who have helped really craft. I mean, Coach Smith, it was all about the center position. It was all about the post position as an anchor for the team, for the offense and the defense. Um, and so it is not lost on me. Uh, it is probably something that will get sweeter as time goes on, but it's a tremendous honor. It's a tremendous honor to uh, currently in my current um, roles as broadcaster and as a someone who's supportive of our athletics programs um, to be a representative of this university. I am deeply proud of this place and of the impact that we have on young people's lives. Yeah, you're certainly making a difference. And again, great embodiment of, of what Coach Smith, I think, taught you as a player during your time there. Uh, again, we're out of time. Uh, November 7th, again, uh, we'll be up there in Chapel Hill, UNCW at North Carolina to kick off the season. I know a lot of excitement for, for UNC fans, but also UNCW fans as well. And I'm excited to get up there and, and see uh, the Tar Heels close up. But Eric, again, great career. Appreciate you spending a little time with us and, and sharing such uh, great stories with us here today. Well, Mike, thanks for having me. And it's, you know, it never gets old, kind of, especially the older you get, to think back to moments that have been impactful in your life. And, you know, fans will come up and they'll talk about their favorite memories. And we've touched on a number of those today, but also the fact that um, this is something that is just, a, it's a part of who we are. It's a part of the fabric of who we are. It doesn't define us, but sports is a great opportunity uh, to really highlight some of the successes of teams and universities. And uh, there's never a dull moment. And we've been very fortunate within this state and within this University of North Carolina to have a lot of great moments to, uh, to look back on. It's been a lot of fun to join you today. Well, again, my thanks to Eric Montrose for joining us here today and sharing some great stories, great memories for him now doing great things back at his alma mater. And we thank you, as always, for watching and for listening. And we remind you, as always, to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Do not miss any of our upcoming episodes. Great guests scheduled coming up. You don't want to miss those, so be sure to subscribe. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you next time in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.